Hello, this is Debbie Reynolds with the Data Diva Talks podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with insights that businesses need to know now. I am super happy today to have Leonard Lee on my show. He is the managing director and founder of NextCurve. He's also had a lot of board memberships and publications. He's a futurist with a capital F. That's what I'm going to say about him. So he's a tech advisor, influencer, market analyst, and I had the pleasure of uh, meeting Lee on LinkedIn. So we always like comment on each other's posts, and then one day I think you tagged me on a post, and then I commented back, and then you called me, and you're like, oh, we have to do something. So I had fun on your show, uh, which is great because, you know, you have a good personality, and I love the fact that you're always looking ahead at things. So you're looking at sort of how the die has been cast right now, and you sort of look at what's going to happen. A lot of people just don't do that. So we have so much fun on that call. Uh, so I'm happy to have you on the show. It's wonderful to be on your show. And by the way, I love your logo, the color choices. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Really awesome. I really like thank it. You, thank yeah. You. So kudos to your graphics designer. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a real pleasure having you on, um, my show, uh, which is, uh, the Rethink podcast for my firm, which is, uh, Next Curve. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we had some fun talking about digital privacy, right? And I'll have to say you are a futurist as well, because if you were talking about privacy and back X number of years ago, you're way ahead of the curve because we don't talk about privacy and, what was really so sobering for me on that session that we had uh, together, and, and folks, you have to check it out because it's really good, and it's not because of me, it's because of your digital diva here. She's fantastic. Uh, you know, you really opened up my eyes, and, you know, I've been looking at privacy for quite some time, especially as it pertains to digital, and, you know, I, I spent a good part of my early career in the dot-com industry uh, working in Silicon Valley with some of these companies that eventually became the Googles and the Facebooks, right? So, you know, very early phase saw what we were doing with the internet and how these ad-driven business models, these freemium business models were uh, looking to start capitalizing on what they could find out about us to monetize that information about us, right? And so I think you're, you're as much of a futurist with a capital F as I am. And, um, and so, um, kudos. You're, you're, you're one of those forward thinking people. Well, thank you so much. Uh, the, the graphic designer is me, by the way. So I do all my own graphics stuff. Oh, yeah. really? <laughs> it's my other side wow. hobby. So when I get, okay. when I get bored with privacy, yeah, well, I do graphic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> now people know. People know now, right? You gotta call. You gotta call Debbie. Exactly. For your exactly. exactly. <laughs> don't don't laugh too exactly. much. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. We're gonna be talking about Absolutely. serious stuff Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Well, you and I have changed. Um, I sent you an email. I sent you an article. So I'm always yeah, looking at stuff or did. whatever. And you and I, I think the last call we had, uh, we sort of talked about. Well, maybe we'll talk about deep fakes at some point. And so a yeah. few little news articles came up, and one just came up that was totally crazy, and I sent it to you. So I would love to talk about deep fakes. I feel like 
we just weren't paying attention when all this stuff was going on with Dayfit. Like, no one was really looking, and now it's out of hand, I think. So what do you think? I think this is absolutely dangerous. You know, I, I think there's some buzz around deep fakes, but I don't think that there's this level of urgency around how this is such a dangerous digital phenomenon, right? Um, and a lot of it is being driven by not just AI. AI is one. Everyone's, oh, yeah, you know, the AI deep fakes are or some sort of manifestation of it. Actually, you know, um, AI is part of the story, but it's also a testament to how far um, other technologies have gone, in in particular, you know, graphics rendering technologies and, uh, you know, just being able to uh, also um, produce these, these fake content, basically, uh, it, very quickly and at scale. And I, I think these are the things that are really, really fli- frightening. And when you combine it with social media and other digital channels to really um, broadcast this content very quickly, it, it's frightening. And, you know, you sent me this uh, article in the MIT Technology Review. What really is freaky is a lot of this stuff is coming out of, you know, Russia, you know, a lot of this fake content, is, and 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 so as we start to see, I, I know that the article that you sent was about, uh, you know, um, I guess this fake, deep fake, pornographic content, right, and really targeted at underaged girls. This could very well easily be weaponized, if if not already being weaponized, and I, I think the prospects of the future. Because of this, the threat to truth and what is real is tremendous. I think is completely underestimated and not talked about enough. Does it sound like I have an opinion about? <laughs> I think you have an opinion about many things. It's good. Uh, yeah, I mean things like having, let's say, you have an opponent in a political process, and you can have them. You know, mimic their voice really accurately in a video or make it seem like they're looking, you know, they're they're saying something that they wouldn't typically say or doing something that they wouldn't typically say. You throw it Mm -hmm. on the Internet and, you know, they say false information uh, uh, travels like six or seven times faster than true information. So, you know, by the time that you even, let's say, like an opponent in a political process, by the time they caught it, the damage is already done. And then, then if you have, there's a court process, like who, you know, do you even have the right to sue? Like, you know, is it your image? You yeah. know, even if it is your image, do you own that image? You know, does a photographer own that image? Is it a criminal yeah. thing? Is it a copyright thing? Is it a defamation, a reliable thing? I mean, uh, it's just, all over the map. You just it's hard to even know where to start with that. But the problem is that the harm mm-hmm. can happen really fast and uh if if and when you're able to get any type of redress it would be very slow. So I think that's always a challenge. Well yeah, and and to remediate the the, the damage that the these these attacks can cause, these deep fake Attacks and let's just call them what they are. They, I mean, they are an attack on a person. Uh, on a person, the the cost of remediating versus and and how little it costs 
for whoever is uh, creating these deep fakes to damage someone, how oh, yeah. cheap it is. Totally. You know, and, and, and so, you know, I do hear a lot of, um, I do read, read a lot of research and engage with a lot of folks in the industry talking about how we can use AI to battle this. And it's like, well, you know, um, once that fake content gets out there, to your, to your point, the damage has already been done. And now in order, the, the effort that you need to go through to now, um, reverse the damage, uh, I mean, number one, I think you can only recover half of yourself after being inflicted with uh, or being attacked in such a way. Um, but um, it's going to be um, almost impossible to really scale your response right. in a way that's going to change anybody's uh, impression. Right. And that's the thing. You've already made that impression. The impression has already been made, and it caters to fantasy. It caters to denial, you know, this whole alternative reality um, and, uh, you know, thing that's going on nowadays that's being fueled by not only fake news, but now it, it's become a visual thing. It's becoming an audio thing, you know, and so you have this content that can now reinforce um, fantasy as well as alternative um, thinking and Absolutely. beliefs, right? And so, you know, we hear about the conspiracy theories. Now, this alternative reality can just make these things really almost alternative, I mean, alternative fact. Exactly. For a lot of folks, right? And that that's just... And then, too, some people are are prone to believe conspiracies anyway. So even if you told them it was fake, they'd be like, oh, I think that's true or whatever. So Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you heard of, I can't remember what it's called exactly. Someone was saying some people have memories of things that didn't happen. Like like an example, they were thinking, remember that the Tiananmen Square thing where the guy stood in front of the tank? Like I heard someone say, well, you know, they killed those that guy. Like, no, he wasn't killed. You know, he went to Harvard actually. I think a couple of years after that, uh-huh. like literally, people said, oh my God, did you see what happened to the guy at Tiananmen Square? I'm like, that did not happen. Mm-hmm. But and it's like, even if you look it up on, on Wikipedia or something, it's like you tell them, like, here's the guy right here. Here, you know, here he is, and they still believe it. So that's another challenge, I think, just the way people think. You know, some people want things that will fall into what their point of view is anyway, so they sort of create these narratives. But it's quite dangerous. Yeah, and 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 these are just very powerful tools, tools that I think can really have a, a tremendous impact on folks that are, are more prone to, let's say, subscribing to um, uh, conspiracy theories. But I, I think especially, you know, if you're looking at personal attacks, these deep fakes are just really dangerous. I think I think it's going to be a really difficult thing to counter going forward. Well, I would love to talk about one of your favorite topics, which is Internet of Things. And one thing that you posted, which was, I think you and I had the same reaction at the same time, which was about having drones uh, flying around your house. Oh, yeah. This new thing. So I'm, I'm totally, a, so I was, I'm totally a fan and I'm happy that they got uh, that 
um, Amazon, I got the FCC license to do drone delivery for packages. So I was totally down with that. I'm like, yes, I love this. But then I saw this thing about drones being in your house. They're supposed to, like, fly around like the Jetsons or something and look at your doors and stuff like that. So I would love to talk to you about that. Yeah. You know, I'm not a really big fan of that. I I mean, I have some smart home products in my my home. They're not entirely smart, but one thing that I know about them is that when I – uh, provisioned them, I gave away a lot of personal information. And, you know, when you do read the, the, the fine print, you're giving away a lot of your privacy rights or, you know, you're opting into a lot of stuff that you actually have no options to right. opt out of. <laughs> you just have to yeah, hit that exactly. agree button just get rid of the 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 product altogether and you know thankfully most of the stuff either came with the house or came with sort of this smart home package but yeah I'll tell you right now I, I mean consumers need to heighten their awareness of the threat that companies pose to their privacy um, and I, I don't think that companies are being thoughtful on how they architect their own products and services to protect your privacy. And so, uh, you know, Debbie, you and I talk a, a lot about, you know, uh, Apple and how uh, they are kind of they, very early on, I think they've kind of taken up this, um, the banner for privacy and not to say that they're perfect. Okay. Um, they've had their issues and they may even have stuff going on that we don't even know about that we might not find so savory from a privacy perspective. Um, but, you know, compared to other companies, you have to admit they architect their, they're pretty much first to market with a lot of privacy, new privacy architect, architectures for consumers. And, and when I see these products just come out of the woodworks, uh, especially for the home, you know, uh, IoT products for the home, you just don't see a lot of this, uh, this mindfulness and consideration for what I, you know, I call it privacy first design. Uh, it, it's almost an af- afterthought. If not, it is an afterthought. Yeah, I think the problem is companies want to make products that have the most widest wide use or applicability, right? So. Mm-hmm then what they do is they give you the choice as a consumer to be your own cybersecurity, you know, expert. So they're like, you know, I want to be able to sell it to a business or a home or a government or, you know, a big corporation. So they're going to add all these features in and likely a lot of them, the default setting is, you know, do everything. And then you, you as a consumer, you have to, decide what you want the thing to do, uh, if you have any control whatsoever. So I think it's putting consumers or people in a, in a tough position because it, it sort of, you know, it's like I tell people it's like giving a baby a steak, you know, it's like, yeah, take this, do that. It's like, well, I, I, I don't know how to do that. You know, people just know how to, you, 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 you follow the prompts, you put it on there and they make it so hard to, to uh, edit or change those settings in a way that makes it better for the consumer. I I agree uh, that there really needs to be more of an opt-out default, 
right? You, you're, you've opted out and that forces the consumer to educate themselves into what they would opt in for. But then that would require people to actually read the fine print. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but there are other ways that you can, um, you can deal with those types of, let's call it, um, barriers or challenges to adoption, right? Um, You took a privacy first approach and going back to what we, uh, what I mentioned earlier and what you and I have talked about is basically designing your um, products and services with privacy in mind. And there are ways to do it. We are, we're, we're seeing a um, solution or architecture patterns that lend to that. I mean, one great example is the, you know, the trusted enclave on a, a series chip on an iPhone, right? I, you know, they were the first to actually bring that to market. So whenever you're, you're, um, uh, using any kind of functionality in iOS 14 or uh, iOS, um, you know, all your private information is stored on that enclave. Um, and so when you look at all the other um, Apple products, the, the whole discipline that they've instilled on the way they designed uh, products was to keep your private information encrypted and on device. They don't send stuff into the cloud or have things on the cloud brokering identity and access uh, in the cloud. When you look at these other guys, almost all of their their um, identity management, access management is done on in the cloud, and they're also storing your biometrics or a biometric proxy, which is, I, I mean, honestly, it's a I, I don't care what kind of excuse you provide about what technology you're using to secure that data. The fact of the matter is, it's not on my device; it's up in the cloud, and Unless I really, really trust you um, and your data center folks, that that stuff will can be hacked. It can be compromised, and there really isn't any kind of excuse for it, right? I think those are the types of um, criteria that consumers need to start to develop in their heads. Like, how how is your product designed to protect my privacy? I agree. I think the shift now has to be. It has to be the shift from uh, a business focus to an individual focus. So I like to call it like the rise of the individual. Mm-hmm. So before a business, you know, yeah. okay, you're a customer, you know, we do all the, we have all these fancy charts and stuff, and then we don't really care about your rights, right? So now it's like, oh my God, like people can consent and they can revoke consent and they can do all this other thing. So if you're thinking privacy first is important, but also consumer first or human first, uh, you need to be thinking about how what you're doing is going to trample on the rights of the consumer. And it's, it's hard because that's not the way that the mindset has been for people, but I'm sure Apple is really leading the way in terms of technology companies to try to make it more of an individual focus. So hopefully that will catch on with other companies. Yeah, it, it really boils down to, here's the thing. Um, I think that companies need to understand that developing relationships with your customers, because I mean, I think a lot of, you know, when you think about the genesis of personalization, especially digital, I mean, it, it kind of originated from this company called uh, Broadvision that 
looked at, provided a I don't know if you could really call it a platform. It's just like a bunch of widgets actually uh, for e-commerce these new e-commerce concerns to build um, websites, you know, commerce websites that could personalize content offers, you know, the product catalog could be profile driven. That then went on this crazy um, uh, trajectory where now you had the likes of uh, Google and the, the, um, the Yahoo's of the world now trying to figure out, well, okay, how do we even further personalize the way that we can target ads uh, using this idea of personalization? Because if you remember, you know, back in the day, um, Yahoo and InfoSeek and all these guys, they're more like uh, DuckDuckGo, you know? I, I didn't know much about DuckDuckGo, but I found out about it. I was like, you know, these guys just serve up, you know, banner ads uh, based on, uh, you know, your keyword search, right? And there's nothing really, uh, you're not really giving up uh, personal information, right? You're not, they're not building a profile on you. And so this idea that you're developing a relationship with a customer by gathering as much data about them and most, you know, and more specifically personal information about them is insane. You know, um, and I think you really have to balance the creepy, the immensely creepy aspect of that with actually developing a relationship with the customers. And um, I think we've just gone way overboard um, tr- uh, trying to pursue this whole micro personalization agenda in the industry. And that really has to change. And that's where I think. Um, privacy awareness and all the stuff that you're doing and I read all your stuff is so important. No, I do. I mean, the reason why you and I are talking and I, I talk to a lot of people is because you have something to say that's important. Well, thank you. No, seriously. You know, I, I'm the one that invited you, right? Mm-hmm. I reached out to you because I, I think what you say, what you know and what you've been researching is absolutely it's vital. Yeah, thank you so much. That's so sweet. Uh, one thing about the personalization that concerns me is sort of the your the way you move through the internet. Everything is filtered before you look at it, right? So, I the analogy I use is like you're in a library. So you walk into a library, you see all these books, you can go into all these sections. The internet is not like that. It's like Here's a section that's walled off, and this is your library for stuff. So it gives you the impression that there's nothing else in the library. And and the more you go down that funnel, the less stuff that you see and the more stuff that you see that's like other things. So you're really sort of uh, – actually, I don't know if you saw the social uh, dilemma. Did you see that? Uh, no, no. I I had a lot of people recommend that to me. So You have to watch it. But there – it's really about social media, but – there's one little thing that they talked about that I wish they could have talked about more in detail, which is everyone has the impression that the things that they see on the Internet is what other people see. And the fact of the matter is that's not true. Like we all see we have all have different experiences because there are different filters and different funnels and different choices that we made. The companies are trying to trying to filter us to a different path and we are not seeing the same thing. Yeah, and you know, I, I would say you don't even need to be in the library. 
that and that's the other problem. You're being tracked at a very granular and persistent way, uh, and, and that's what's really frightening. And you have no now you have no way of opting out of that. And so I think this whole idea of the right to be forgotten is so important. You know, you're very familiar with that with the GDPR um, stuff that you're doing, research that you're doing. Um, but how do you, how can you institute that? And, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about and as part of the research that we've been doing, uh, and, uh, and what we've done for Ofcom, which is the UK regulator, is we recommended to them one of the important, you know, technology trends that they should probably be mindful of and promote is this idea of trust platforms. There has to be some kind of way to establish provenance of uh, content and data uh, where there can be some sort of uh, consensus around what is true. And um, and then some on top of that, then you have to worry about all the mechanisms that you need to be able to quickly scale that counter to the deep fakes and all these other fake things that are out there that challenge truth. Man, I mean, if you really think about it, it's going to be insane. The next decade is is going to be crazy, and and the our lack of um, consideration of privacy, these things, and and you know, in a lot of ways, what is true, is going to be a huge threat to societies. Oh, absolutely. And we really need to check our innovations against some of these. I think very important principles that are the foundations of the integrity of our societies. So I think that's a good segue to 5G. So I know the 5G is something that you're really interested in, and I guess we can geek out about that. Uh, but <laughs> it's going to revolutionize the world. So think back. So now we're in 4G, right? So okay. when we were in 3G, yeah. I don't know, no one was like, trying to take down towers or anything when we went from 3D to 4D. But now people are, like, attacking tower, cell towers and stuff. I don't know why that is. But uh, if you think about it, 4G made it capable for you to use things like Uber because 3G was not fast enough to be able to, to get, like, the GPS information on the phone and things like that. So ushering in 5G will bring other technologies that aren't possible in 4G. And I'm interested to see what those are going to be. I don't know what's happening right now. I think, uh, you know, some companies are trying to obviously rush to 5G. Some of them trying to stop other people from doing 5G. You know, the U.S. wants to be ahead of 5G. I don't know how that's going to happen because they're not – are they doing – I mean, what's happening? Just tell me. What are your thoughts? <laughs> okay, so uh, first off, um, that whole thing about the the – burning of the towers and stuff, the 5G, uh, the cell towers, that was because some genius sat there and took, like, the map of the 5G deployments and looked at the COVID maps of where the virus was spreading, and they correlated. They said, oh, wait a minute, these maps look the same, so, you know, the cause mm -hmm. and effect, right? And so that's where this conspiracy uh, came from. And, and, you know, unfortunately, people are acting on those conspiracies. So, you know, going back to our first topic on deep fakes, why it's so dangerous that uh, we have people believing right. in fake stuff. Uh, but, yeah, 5G is, is it's, it's very um, it's a complex topic. 
And, uh, you know, here's the thing. Yeah, a lot of people say, well, you know, if it wasn't for 4G, we wouldn't have Uber and blah, 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 you know, Netflix and all that stuff. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, yes, uh, we would have had those things. It's just that uh, when you think about it, a lot of these things, a lot of these applications originally were on your PC. Uh, and, yes, uh, 4G, quite honestly, were, um, kind of followed the demand uh, that, uh, in particular, uh, Apple was pressing upon them with uh, applications like FaceTime. You know, so some remember, you know, FaceTime before you could only be on Wi-Fi, you couldn't be on right. a cellular network, exactly. right? And, yeah, yeah. And so it's not that these guys enabled, uh, you know, the the 4G, uh, 3G enabled these applications. It was really the applications that kind of created and generated the demand that pushed. So it's actually the other way around. You know, it's not like the carriers created the capacity and the technology, even though some some folks will argue otherwise on the technology end. Uh, but in terms of capacity, they didn't build the capacity before the applications were already there and, and you know, kind of pushing things. And with 5G, um, I mean, you know, you're pretty much going to see the, a similar dynamic. You know, the thing is, is that everyone's talking about the industrial um, applicability of 5G now. Um, but that's a whole greenfield, um, actually still highly unknown frontier for the telco operators. And there's a lot of stuff that's happening around 5G that is going to change the role of telcos versus cloud players versus, you know, a, a lot of other players out there in the overall ICT or what, what is the information communications technology um, industry. Uh, it, it's going to be really interesting. Now, my thinking is this, is that the most uh, transformative element of 5G is really this ultra reliable, low latency stuff. That's what I think is going to drive a lot of the new types of applications that we haven't seen before, but that stuff is going to be extremely hard. Um, I think the industry, number one, doesn't really understand um, URLC as well as they think they do, and they don't think of it in terms of the application of the system. They're thinking of merely in terms of um, how uh, the the latency between the radio and your handset, and you got you have to think beyond that. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I don't know who's uh, eventually everyone will be on five G, every country. But you know, I don't know who who's going to be first. Maybe China. Maybe I don't know. You know, uh, actually, South Korea has been first in a lot of stuff. Even though you know, don't tell that to the mm-hmm. folks at Verizon. <laughs> Guys at Verizon, yeah, no, yeah. we were first. And it's like, yeah, okay, you know, you guys can argue over that. But uh, in terms of penetration, yeah, I mean, South Korea is going nuts with it. So, um, you know, uh, and everyone else is uh, fast or slow following. But I, I think a lot of markets are still really, really cautious about it. So what are your thoughts if you had to, if you had your wish, if they let lead decide? What's to happen with privacy, like in the next five years? Like, what would be your wish on your wish list? Uh, my wish list? Um, yeah, you know, my wish list would be: Can I have a 
you know, delete or restore or reset button. Oh, that's good. That's, that's my, that would be great. That's never going to happen. But yeah, that'd be amazing. (laughs) I mean, well, you know, but then we haven't really put a lot of energy into that. I mean, the closest we've gotten is GDPR, uh, right to be forgotten. And then, you know, of course they basically tell the companies, now you figure out how that happens. You just have to, Make sure that you provide consumers or citizens with the right. Is it the right to be forgotten, or is it the right to? Yes, you're right. The right to be forgotten, the right to erasure. That that is never going to happen in the U.S. because even if privacy laws change here, companies have so much data they will not give that stuff up because they can still use it. I mean, you know, just say like Lee likes, I don't know, pomegranate. So that probably won't change, right? Yeah. So even if you say forgot, like, we know we know that's you. He eats pomegranates every week or something like that. So, uh, but yeah, like they're 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 actually hoovering up as much data as possible because even if the laws pass, it's going to be about data going forward as opposed to in the past. So I think the right to be forgotten people in Europe really are excited about that. Now, you know, we have a little bit of taste of that in the CCPA, but it doesn't even go back that far. So it all begins with awareness, right? I think folks in the EU are much more aware of privacy rights or even in the UK, especially oh, yeah. in the UK. Uh, you know, I mean, um I was surprised when I was at, when I was in London, I, I was I, is it okay to say that I was drinking at a bar and I was like just chatting up with a guy? Now? I think who is not at a bar in London drinking? I think that's when you get off the plane, they tell you you have to do that. Yeah, exactly. A pub, yes. Yeah, he was telling me that, yeah, you know, in the UK, uh, the a UK citizen has a right to refuse to disclose their identity to law enforcement, you know? Uh, and, and so you have this, these cultures where privacy is very, sort of sacred almost, right? And so uh, you see policies like GDPR uh, coming to fruition uh, where I think in the U.S., I think we just, here was a big takeaway that I got from our discussion. We assume we have privacy rights. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? And and this is where why I think what you're doing is so important because you're part of that movement and you're a source uh, of awareness uh, of the fact that, number one, we don't have what we think that we have. And number two, you have to be aware of what we don't have before you start to ask for what we should right. have, which is privacy Absolutely. rights. Right? Absolutely. I think that people in America don't care about privacy rights. But if you really sat down and talked to someone and, like, explained to them what was private and what wasn't, like, I've never had a conversation where the person's like, oh, that's cool. They're like, what? You know, they're okay with it up to a point. And then they're like, oh, my God, I had no idea. So, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness doesn't include privacy. Yeah, and and that's a revelation. for. uh, But I don't think there's enough people who have their eyes opened about this stuff. I feel like we have to have these conversations at every level. So you have to be able to explain to yeah. someone who's 80, someone who's eight. Yeah. So we're not talking, you know, a lot of us, 
obviously, you know, we have these chats amongst us or we'll, we're at conferences and stuff, but we have to, and that's one thing I really liked about the social dilemma. I felt like it really brought the conversation down to a level that like a teenager could understand, which is important. We have to cover all those bases. Yeah. And you know, I, I was, this, this thought dawned on me, uh, as we were, as we had the lead into our, um, our discussion on my podcast is that one of the reasons why we have companies like Google and Facebook and, and others is because we legally don't have comprehensive privacy. Right. If we did, these companies probably wouldn't exist in the way that they exist today. Right. What they would be is they would be duck, duck, go. And what I think has happened is over the years, these guys through their lawyers have figured out, Hey, wait a minute. Um, we can do this. We can do that. Oh, I didn't know we can do that. Let's do this. And so what you see is not innovation. I think a lot of the stuff that let's say, um, uh, you know, Google and UltraSeek and all these search engine companies did in the early days with search platforms as well as their integration with the ad platforms. They progressively evolved these platforms to be more intrusive on our privacy because they discovered that the law permitted it. So now what you're seeing is that they're starting to butt up against, or actually uh, the EU and other regions, including China, are realizing, look, these guys are like straight up stealing people's identities to make ad dollars, you know? And I think the rest of the world is waking up to this, and it's going to be a challenge going forward uh, for the likes of Facebook and Google. I think so. Um, where you have the majority of the planet not agreeing with our interpretation of privacy rights. Right. And, and, and don't agree with the level of uh, endowment that our government provides and our laws provide uh, for our privacy so true, so true. I totally agree. And I think there's no coincidence that the top companies in the world are from the U.S. And it's just no coincidence that happened. So now we see the FTC, they're trying to do these antitrust cases. And that's whole, like a whole other episode we could like talk about or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, we can't go there. We don't have any time. <laughs> but thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this is all uh, enlightening as always. You're always a lot of fun to talk to. And thank you so much. You are as well. So thanks so, so much for, uh, thank you so much for having me. Fantastic, fantastic. <laughs>